Support for Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Do well and do good. Hello, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the scientists, journalists, newsmakers, and other folks on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Today's show comes on the heels of the second of two record-breaking storms in what is already shaping up to be an extremely active hurricane season. So before we introduce this week's guest, I thought we could take some time to talk about Harvey and Irma. So these names sound like they're characters in a Noel Coward play and not like the record-breaking, devastating storms that they actually were. To help break this all down with me is my co-host, meteorologist-turned-journalist Eric Holthouse of Grist. How's the move going, Eric? It's going well, thanks. <laughs> um, so we're in the Twin Cities now, which is nice because there's like I can walk outside without uh getting sunburned. <laughs> um but uh yeah it's sad to see Arizona go but um I think that you know a lot more uh diversity of the weather here and that's what I live for. So <laughs> it's nice. gonna be great. Yeah so you've basically traded off um like wildfires and really bad droughts and heat waves for tornadoes. And snowstorms and everything. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. It's like I increasingly think about the places I live in terms of natural disasters, um, which uh, gets, I guess, gets us to the heart of today's conversation. So thinking about, um, yeah, Harvey and Irma. So what is up with this storm season? Um, I see a lot of people, for example, on Twitter saying, oh, there were more storms in, you know, 1880, whatever. Why are you guys pulling the climate change story out of your butts? Um, and I think that reflects a really poor understanding of the linkage between climate change and uh, storms. So, Eric, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's really not about the number of storms. There's actually no clear science whether hurricanes will increase or decrease in number in the future. So we're going to have about the same number of storms is what it seems like. And, and actually, you know, we've gone through this sort of lull in the, the, the strongest number of storms over the last decade or so um, in the United States. But, you know, the U.S. is only 4% of global area. So looking at the, the world um, as a whole, there's definitely no shortage in number of strong hurricane landfalls in the last 10 years, you know, um, typhoon high end, super typhoon um, comes to mind as as you know probably the worst hurricane landfall in recorded history, and that was in um, 2013. So, um, almost every year um, for the recent years, there's been major hurricanes that are making landfall and many times breaking records. So, um, the clearest connection that that these storms have to climate change is in rising sea levels increasing the risk of of coastal flooding um, so hurricanes are really good at pushing a lot of water on shore and that's where the majority of deaths happen um, in a hurricane not because of wind speed but because of water overwhelming um, coastal housing and businesses and and washing out infrastructure. Um, basically, um, 
when uh, when water when water hits you, it has something like a thousand times the force of wind anyway. So um, that's why just two or three feet of water can float a car away, um, and you need wind speeds of over hundred miles an hour to to move a car. So um, so uh, we. We're seeing an increase in sea level, you know, obviously around the world, and that's an un, uh, unassailable connection to climate change. And there is a 100% certainty that her, that Harvey and, and Irma were related to climate change in that sense, that, that the storm surge along the coast was made worse uh, because of climate change. And, and at least in, in Irma's case, we had record-breaking storm surge in Jacksonville, Florida, and even into um, parts of, of Georgia and South Carolina that were hundreds of miles of away from from the center of the storm um, that in the last, you know, since we've been keeping records over 100 years, there's never been a storm surge that strong that's brought that high of water level um, to, to that part of the U.S. coast, um, as has happened with Irma. So that is, you know, 100% certainty that that climate change made that, that flooding worse. Um, what's a little bit less certain is um, increasing rainfall. And, and that's where, you know, Harvey was the rainstorm of record in the United States. You know, there was, a, there was an analysis um, done in the last week that, um, some parts of, 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 of Southeast Texas were, uh, uh, recorded, a one in 500,000 year rainstorm in association with, with Harvey. And that is just, you know, it's really <laughs> sort of like a best guess ballpark estimate. Cause clearly we don't have annual rainfall records going back that far. <laughs> we don't even have, you know, human habitation of North America that's gone back back that far. So there's no way for us to know for sure. But um, but using uh, using the baseline data that we have and assuming uh, an unchanging climate, which is not a good assumption, obviously, we know that the rains associated with Harvey are unlike anything ever experienced in the United States. Um in parts of Texas, uh, they more than doubled their previous five-day rainfall record. So, you know, these are records that are normally broken by a fraction of an inch. And Harvey brought, you know, upwards of four feet of rain, doubling the previous record in some parts of, of uh, southeast Texas close to Houston. So this is just so far off the chart that, that, um, that we really weren't expecting anything like this to ever happen in our lifetimes, let alone, you know, back to back with a lot of other floods in the Houston area in recent years. Um, I think there's been three or four 500 year floods in the Houston area just in the last three years. So this is something that is happening more often. And we have a pretty good understanding that uh, with a warming atmosphere, it holds more water vapor. And that increases the efficiency of, of, uh, of thunderstorms that produce heavy rain. So that's a pretty clear signal uh, also for climate change in that, um, in that uh, example. So, um, and that's just, that's just like basic physics, right? That yeah. warmer air masses hold more water. Yep. And then also that these hurricanes are getting a lot of, they, they're, and they get their energy over the ocean, right? So anyone who's tracking these storms, 
you know, you always hear about them weakening as they go over land and then sort of gathering up strength if they go back over the water. And the the temperatures in the Gulf have been pretty, and the Caribbean have been really warm lately. Isn't that yep, correct? Pretty close to record temperatures. I think there's only one year. Um, I think it was uh, 2010. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure, but but we're right at um, near record levels in terms of water temperatures in the Gulf and in the um, in the the far um, western Atlantic. You know, around the Bahamas, right where uh, Irma passed through. So, um, but again, um, we're a little bit less certain about how climate change is already affecting the strength of hurricanes. So there's some competing forces between the extra boost that the hurricanes are going to get from warmer water. And also there is expected to be an increase in, in uh, wind shear, which works to tear apart hurricanes or inhibit their development. So um, there's a slight uh, modeling of maybe some increase in wind shear um, in association with, with climate change. And we're, we're not sure how those, those two competing forces balance out right now, but um but there is there is some evidence that um, if the conditions are right, those warmer uh, temperatures will act to increase the chances for rapid strengthening of hurricanes. So we're going to have of the number of hurricanes that do form, which are going to expect it to be about the same number, more of them will end up being category four and category five like Irma and Harvey were. So um that is also a relatively robust signal that a lot of researchers have been discovering um, is that we're expecting to have um, more of the hurricanes that do form, more of them will be intense. Um, in well, so I was going to say, too, with the, the discussion of categories, yeah. some of the, the discussion around Irma was that it would technically be a six mm -hmm. if the scale went that high. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that hype or is that real? Sure, or? it's real. I mean, I don't think there is any uh, officially to increase those categories to make a category six. But um, and in fact, only I think um, Irma would have only been the fourth Hurricane in recorded history to have qualified for that, um, if it did exist, it doesn't exist. Um, but uh, but you know, like if we're going to be starting to to have stronger storms anyway, it's worth thinking about um, the the impacts from a Category Five or a Category Six, if it did exist, really <laughs> aren't going to be that different. Like there's only so many ways you can completely, de completely destroy a house. So, um, hmm. and that's really why, um, why like for, for tornadoes, for example, technically the, I think the, the, uh, enhanced Fujita scale goes up to like F12 or something like that. But we really only talk about F1 through F5 because once you get above 300 mile an hour winds, you can't really distinguish between the damage, you know, <laughs> if your house is blown off of its foundation and there's really nothing left but bare dirt, like how do you know how high the wind speed was? Because no wind instrument that we've made so far can withstand that sort of uh, winds anyway to measure it. Um, so, so we're really sort of getting out of the realm of us even being able to know um, how strong the storm is at that point. So, um, wow. so I think that that that's an interesting debate to have, but it 
doesn't really change the practical impact of the storm. And that's really, I think, what we would be focusing on in the in the um, in the you know hours right before the storm laid made landfall. Although if there are anyone, if there is anyone that would be sort of like brushing off a category five anyway, I'm not sure how motivated they would be if there was a category six, you know? So, you know, as a, as a climate journalist, have you noticed any difference in the way people have been talking about climate change after these hurricanes? I mean, I know there's some evidence that suggests that after extreme events like this, there's sort of a, a pulse of, of an, or an increase in the pr- proportion of people who think that climate change is real um, and caused by human activities. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, are, are people still pretty skeptical or have we kind of reached our saturation point or are, are events like these sort of waking up a new cohort of people to the realities of how human activities are changing you know, the weather on the planet fundamentally. Yeah, there is some science that there is a bump in the percentage of people that say that they believe that climate change is real and happening right after extreme events like this. But there's also science saying that that bump doesn't last very long. It doesn't really change people's uh, views in the long term. It doesn't change their politics on climate change. Um, It's more about... um, I mean, after Sandy, I think that there was a push to say, like, we need better weather forecasting models in the United States to capture these kind of storms. If there are going to be more of these storms, we need to know that they're coming in order for us to prepare in the days ahead of time to increase our confidence that the storm's actually going to hit land. And there was actually a, 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 a bill that made it through Congress on the heels of Sandy that that really boosted um, research at the at the um, in the National Weather Service to improve our forecasting capabilities. You know, remains to be seen whether that actually worked at all, um, because the uh, the weather models are still sort of you know not perfect. I don't know that they're ever going to be perfect, but the skill has increased a lot in the, in the five years since, since Sandy. So we do see some benefit of that sort of immediate reaction to the storm, you know, bipartisan bill to say we need better, better weather forecasts. And that, um, that did end up making a difference in that, in that case. Um, in terms of the general public pushing for climate action, I think that, um, you know, I have seen an uptick in the last few days of people saying, you know, it's so weird that these two hurricanes happened back to back that we have to be talking about climate change right now. We have to be talking about it um, as much as we possibly can, because if not now, then when? I mean, the the mayor of, of Miami, who's a Republican, is uh, the biggest uh, example that I've seen so far, who sort of directly addressed um, President Trump saying, you know, this is climate change. This is if this is not climate change, I don't know what is. So mm-hmm. um, so to have instances like that that come out that sort of say, you know, we need to just sort of take a step back here and look at the bigger picture. I don't think that there can ever be too much of that. I mean, that needs to happen as much as possible. So in the sense that that we've had that opportunity to have that discussion this week, I think that's a great thing. Support for Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S., 
Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017, which will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more about the solar projects Wonder Capital is helping to finance and the impact of their investments, create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Hurricanes and climate change have been linked in our consciousness for a long time. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina was a wake-up call for many Americans, highlighting the terrible vulnerability of many of our communities. So not just the sort of physics of weather, but actually the impacts of those weather events on, on humans, human beings. So the, the fact that the risks of climate change and these extreme events aren't shared equally is something that many people are just now coming to appreciate. The Flint water crisis drove this home more recently and really reminds us that we still have a very long way to go when it comes to mitigating the impacts of these environmental events on, on human communities. And the, the fact that there's a, a disproportionate impact of, of pollution, of climate change, and other environmental concerns on communities of color in particular is something that many folks have been aware of for quite some time. So we know that communities of color have higher exposure rates to air pollution than white non-Hispanic uh, counterparts. We know that landfills, hazardous waste sites, and industrial facilities are most often located in communities of color. There's lots of research that's gone into this. Um, lead poisoning disproportionately affects children of color. Climate change disproportionately affects low-income communities and communities of color. There's lots of research on this topic. And this all falls under this umbrella of environmental justice. So here to talk with us today about this is Mustafa Santiago Ali, Senior Vice President of Climate, Environmental Justice, and Community Revitalization for the Hip Hop Caucus, a national nonprofit and nonpartisan organization connecting the hip hop community with the civic process to build power and create positive change. You may have heard of him. He was the head of the environmental justice program at the EPA, and that's actually a program that Mustafa helped launch in 1992. And he recently stepped down when Scott Pruitt took over on the heels of deep cuts to the administration and big reductions to its staff. And in fact, there was an internal memo that circulated last March that called for massive cuts specifically to the Office of Environmental Justice, as well as to many programs, um, and, you know, including grants that addressed poor and minority communities when it comes to things like pollution. And when he left, Mustafa drafted a letter urging Scott Pruitt to protect those programs. And that letter was later published on Inside Climate News and has since been read by literally over a million people. So I'm so glad that you're able to join us today, Mustafa. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. So I, I guess to start, um, the, the idea of environmental justice is is something that I find, you know, some folks have been really savvy about, and for others, it's completely new. I still have people occasionally stopping me and saying, wait, what do you mean by that? So as someone who's been involved in the movement almost as long as it's been around, can you tell us a little bit about that history and why the environmental justice framework is so important? Oh, sure. Um, you know, it, it kind of goes back a little ways. Um, so let me start with uh, sort of the definition that the government uses. You know, they talk about 
you know, communities of color and low-income communities being disproportionately uh, impacted um, from toxins, from pollution. But, you know, that doesn't have a lot of meaning for most folks. Mm. So it's better to give real-life examples of how that actually plays out in people's lives and their communities uh, and how it impacts uh, their possibilities for being able to move forward. So a lot of people talk about the flashpoint of the environmental justice movement uh, being in Warren County, North Carolina in the early 80s. And this is a community that's primarily African-American, middle to low income. Um, And the state of North Carolina uh, had PCBs that were being sprayed on roadways across North Carolina. So they had to take that up and they had to make a decision about where they were going to um, you know, store it, a, a landfill, if you will, where it could be placed. And in their analysis, they identified a number of locations across the state of North Carolina. And um, one of them uh, was Warren County, North Carolina, but it was not the best location for it to be placed. There were a number of others that were more suitable based on you know, topography and water tables and a number of different things, but they chose this community that was African-American and lower income because in many instances, folks thought that there would be less resistance um, and that some folks would say because it was a community of color, didn't have as much value. Um, but the folks who were in that community decided that they had had enough because there were other types of polluting facilities that were around, other impacts that were happening in their community, both environmental and public health, and they decided to protest. And they protested for months. People literally laid down their lives in front of the trucks that were rolling into their community to stop this from happening. Um, And eventually, out of that, even though Uh, They weren't able to stop it. Uh, Walter Fauntroy, who was a congressman from Washington, D.C., was actually invited to come down to one of the protests uh, with the assumption that he would not be arrested along with other folks who were continually being arrested. And uh, once he was, he (laughs) went back to Washington, D.C. and commissioned a study to find out what was happening in the South and, and was this an aberration or was this sort of commonplace uh, that low-income communities, communities of color, uh, were the ones where these types of things were being placed. And unfortunately, that study showed and began sort of the scientific um, you know, documentation uh, that communities of color and low-income communities are disproportionately where pollution is being placed. Um, the things that others don't want end up in these communities, whether we're talking about landfills, we're talking about coal-fired power plants, we're talking about incinerators, Uh, We're talking about lead and housing, so forth and so on. Uh, You know, communities of color are being disproportionately impacted. So then your your role at the EPA was to was was formalized to try to gain traction on some of these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of work that you did for them? Sure. Well, I always like to make sure that history, uh, the true history is being told. Uh, A lot of times people think, oh, well, an office just kind of popped up at EPA because there were so many well-meaning folks who were there who cared about (laughs) communities of color. And that's just not true. Uh, I always talk about real talk. So here's a little real talk for the listeners. Um, Actually, there were a set of recommendations that came from stakeholders, uh, part of the Michigan Working Group in the late 80s. Um, And they actually, um, one of those recommendations was actually to create an Office of Environmental Equity. 
Now, at that time, there were three different names, environmental equity, environmental justice, and environmental racism. And when the office was first created in November of 1992, the name was the Office of Environmental Equity. Um, And that's how uh, we got started. Many of the most successful programs um, and priorities that have been set over the years actually came out of and continue uh, up until the time that I left, came from communities. Um, If you look at the grant programs that have been placed for elimination or cuts, those came out of recommendations from stakeholders. The Environmental Justice Small Grants Program, which has provided, I believe, at last count, uh, about 1,500 communities across the country, uh, probably close to $24, $25 million. Those recommendations to make sure that the seed money was there uh, came you know, from uh, those stakeholders, and I was blessed to have an opportunity to participate in that. The National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, um, which is a federal advisory committee, which provides advice and recommendations to the administrator on some of the most pressing issues inside of communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous populations. That also came uh, from stakeholders. And then the Interagency Working Group as another example which there are 17 federal agencies and a couple of White House offices that have a distinct responsibility for addressing these issues inside of communities of color and low-income communities. Um, That also came out of that. So my work over the years uh, was helping uh, communities to navigate the bureaucracy that is Washington, D.C., uh, helping them to have a seat at the table, helping them to be able to make sure that their voices were heard, uh, helping to make sure that when there were injustices happening, uh, that we brought the attention, resources, technical assistance uh, to be able to address those issues in a snapshot. So this is like real bottom-up grassroots organizing. This is probably a form of government that, a lo- or I guess decision-making that a lot of folks are probably not familiar with. I would agree with that. You know, it's interesting the way the government works. I've often said, no matter which administration that I was working for, and, you know, I work for both Republican and Democratic administrations, we should sort of highlight for folks for historical value that the Office of Environmental Equity actually was founded under a Republican administration. William Riley was the administrator at that time. And I always give him a lot of credit, you know, uh, although he was pushed. I want to make sure a real talk. He was pushed, um, you know, to make sure that the office and to be engaging with uh, the environmental justice leaders. Um, You know, the Office of Environmental Justice, which, you know, still exists right at this moment, um, is an example of how government should work, as you said, because... Um, we should not be creating policies or programs or activities that communities are not asking for and that they do not see as value. And I Mm -hmm. say that because these are their tax dollars that are being utilized. So if you're not doing that, um, and there are instances over time where, you know, uh, the government has not sort of followed that mantra, if you will, or that vision or mission, And, um, you know, there have been negative things that have happened inside of communities. So we should never be moving forward, or I should say the government should never be moving forward uh, on, you know, activities that there's not real true engagement and that communities aren't asking for. It's a different paradigm. Yeah. So you you mentioned just now that you you served under both Democratic and Republican administrations um, and 
I'm just wondering what, what was that like? I mean, for, for, for some of us now, it's got to be really hard to imagine gaining any kinds of traction on these issues under, you know, under certain administrations. And so, um, you know, do you think, did you, I mean, did you notice big differences from administration to administration, or do you think we could even get back to a place where, where the environment and and social justice aren't just the concern of one party or, or maybe, maybe I'm even like thinking about, you know, Democrats with sort of rose tinted glasses, maybe, you know, we're not doing that great a job of this either. Yeah. I mean, there's always been opportunity uh, to do better. Um, And we have to do better because we're literally dealing with people's lives and their health. So there's no reason for the folks not being laser focused, no matter what administration it might be. Um, You know, over the years, there was an ebb and flow. um, But, um, you know, with our current administration, I've never seen an administration that was very laser focused uh, sort of in deconstructing and dismantling the basic protections, one for all communities, but especially our most vulnerable communities. If you look back over the years, um, you know, uh, different administrations had different sets of priorities and goals. But I, you know, we always found a way to continue to be able to make, um, you know, move forward with progress. Sometimes it was incremental progress. Other times there were more leaps. Um, But there always was sort of that uh, ray of sunlight, if you will, that led one to believe that you could still continue to do work that was necessary and that would make a difference inside, inside of communities. Um, and, and I think that's what's always kept people going over the years. Um, uh, but currently, we it, it's much more difficult to see right now. Let me say so it that what, way. Uh, if I can ask just point blank, what caused you to leave earlier this year? You know, um, there were a couple of different things. You know, one was a different set of priorities and values. And when I say that, you know, that can seem kind of esoteric. But for me, sort of being uh, raised as a student in the environmental justice movement and working with hundreds and hundreds of communities over the years, um, I know what's happening out there. And some folks said, well, Mustafa, why didn't you just like kind of put your head down and you know, uh, go off to the side and just wait for four years until, you know, there might be a a new uh, set of values that would move in with a new administration. And for the communities that I had served uh, who are dealing with these very significant issues 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, they don't have time for folks to wait. Um, So I just couldn't be a part of what I knew uh, was going to sort of equate into uh, more folks getting sick, um, and unfortunately, uh, some folks will die based on some of the decisions that are being made. Um, and, um, you know, we see a number of different things that are playing out now based upon some of the decision-making that's been around some of the programs that people are trying to eliminate um, and, you know, sort of the shrinking of uh, employee bases, all these different types of things. Uh, have significant impacts inside of communities. And I just knew I personally couldn't be a part of that. Um, It's not the way that I was raised. Um, And, um, you know, I I knew that I needed to move forward and and find a location and a place where I could continue to do the work that is so needed. So in going forward, what do you think is needed? I mean, in looping back to the first part of of the show, um, specifically focused on... um, climate change and hurricanes and in extreme weather, I feel like that 
is something that brings this added urgency, like you're talking about. There's an urgency right now um, that that um, I think you know, for better or worse, um, a lot of people might think of of uh, pollution as sort of like a long term thing that that can sort of be ignored for a while, but whether it feels like is something that just sparks right to the front of your fight or flight um, response. And it maybe gives a voice to all of these sort of hidden concerns that communities are dealing with um, the rest of the year, you know, like, like, um, like, uh, like the problems in Flint, Michigan, for example, like uh, it, it took an, it took a news article for that to sort of, break out to the front. So there, sometimes there has to be this sort of news hook for people to pay attention and realize and dig in and say, these are, are problems that are long-standing problems that need to be addressed now. Like there is an urgency. We can't wait anymore. So what what do you think needs to happen from this point on? Because um, we, we're going to have this administration for at least a while. Um, what do you think is the best thing that can happen right now to, to make progress? Yeah. Well, I mean... There are a number of things. Um, so let me sort of unpack some of that. Uh, as it relates to climate uh, and climate change, um, you know, climate change is real. Um, you know, what is it, 97% of, of scientists have, have verified that. Um, you know, if you've, if you've taken a basic physics course or some basic science classes, then you know that that is. Um, so I don't even get into to the debate about that. But... Um, what you're going to find also is that because of climate change, there's now sort of a double whammy, sometimes a triple whammy effect in our most vulnerable communities. Because as you said, you know, many of these communities, like the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, which is uh, primarily a Latino community, this community uh, literally on a day-to-day basis is surrounded by petrochemical facilities. Literally, if you go there, you're going to see more piping than you're actually going to see trees. And every day, and I've been there, you know, when you roll your window down, if you drove into the, to this area, this community, you literally, when you roll the window down, you feel like you're breathing gasoline fumes. And this community has to deal with this situation uh, every day. And the schools that are there, Cesar Chavez High School and other schools that are uh, right there in the neighborhood, you know, you're expecting children uh, and other young people to actually be able to learn why they're, you know, having difficulty breathing. Um, so it just blows your mind. But climate change uh, and the hurricanes have actually placed a spotlight uh, on this community and others um, so that folks are now not only paying attention to the flooding, but they're also paying attention to the environmental uh, impact. So as the storm was coming in, they do something called start up and shut down. Um, so as the plants are shutting down, they're literally flaring and pushing, um, you know, Uh, all the pollution out of their facility to be able to shut down as they're burning things off. um, And that blows back into the community. So when I talk about the double whammy, you know, they've got the impacts from the storm. Then they have the impacts from the pollution um, that, you know, is a part of the shutdown process, if you will. Um, And then also there are a number of Superfund sites, which are some of our most toxic uh, sites around the country. And when the floods come, then that gets moved around the community and even in greater distances, you know, to other schoolyards or people's backyards, so forth and so on. 
So it's placing a spotlight on these injustices that continue to happen inside of these communities on a continual basis. Same thing in Port Arthur, Texas, um, which is, you know, down the road just a bit. And they're also facing these types of situations on a regular basis. Now, the other thing that folks don't realize is, is that when the plants start back up, there's a new push of pollution that's going to go out uh, into these communities. So just imagine if you're returning back to your community after one of these major storms has went through, you've dealt with the flooding, and now you're coming back home to clean up or whatever it might be, and then you have to deal with you know, these, these other impacts. Um, you know, that's the disproportionality that people continually face and, and why we have to be so focused And that's why also it's so important for this new administration to, one, understand these impacts that are happening. They should actually be, as I've said thousands of times, they should actually be spending time in these communities, having real conversations with these folks about what they're dealing with so that when they go back to Washington and they begin to have these in-depth conversations about policy, that, you know, these folks' voices and faces uh, are forefront in their minds um, so that they don't continue this road uh, of these disproportionate impacts that are happening. But when you don't spend any time with Mrs. Ramirez or Mr. Johnson, then it's easy for you to then move forward in a theoretical base instead of a reality base. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things um, that, that folks can do or should be doing. That just highlights something that's really a recurring theme on our show, which is this idea of empathy and that so much of the motivation for, um, you know, even whether or not you believe in climate change, um, let alone whether you decide you should do something about it, comes down to your ability to identify with others and the, you know, the suffering that they're going through. And this is something that we struggle with so much um, when we're, you know, Eric is a journalist, I'm a scientist, but I do a lot of uh, I try to do a lot of outreach and communication. And one thing that we both struggle with is how to communicate the impacts of climate change um, when it's not being felt by everyone everywhere equally. You know, whether people say, I don't believe in it, or if they say, well, it's there, but it's it's not bad, or it won't hurt us. Um, you know, it, we can't really wait for climate change to be, you know, a rich white person's problem before we do something about it. And the problem is most of the decisions about climate change are being made by, you know, affluent white people. So I'm so glad that you're here so that I can ask you, like, how do you advocate for change when the decision makers are often the people who are the most protected and they stand the least to lose? Like, how do you get them to talk to the Mrs. Ramirez's and and the Mr. Johnson's? Like, how, how do you get people out of out of their complacency bubble? Well, I think there, you know, there are a number of different uh, ways of approaching that. When I can, I get folks together um, when that's possible um, so, that they can, so that they can talk and then to begin to think critically about some of these issues. You know, th- the other thing is that folks have to remember in our country uh, that they have power um, and that they can translate that power into real change. So, uh, you know, as you aptly said, you know, you know, sort of resources and money are one of the processes that, that move things. But the other one is the power of people, whether you look at the women's movement or the civil rights movement, so forth and so on. As people began to get engaged in that process, uh, then change uh, began to happen. It wasn't change overnight, 
but it did start to move forward. The other thing is, and something that was interesting that you raised, was that sometimes people don't see themselves as possibly being impacted or don't understand uh, the impacts. So impacts also come not just um, you know, from being exposed to pollution uh, or from the impacts that are happening from climate. There's also an economic component to this as well. Um, and I used to work on healthcare issues and some other things. And lots of times folks don't realize um, that as these storms continue to come, you know, now, you know, we're $100 billion in Texas at, at a minimum. We're going to spend $100 billion in Florida. You know, that begins to also uh, come from, you know, folks' taxes all across the country. So as we know there are going to be more and more storms, if we don't begin to think more critically about the changes that are necessary, how do we begin to reduce some of these impacts? We're not going to be able to stop all of them. Then there is going to be a greater financial uh, burden that's going to be placed on our country. Usually when you start talking about people's pocketbooks, then you start to get their attention, or at least they begin to raise an eyebrow and start to think about these issues uh, whether if they think that, you know, the impacts from climate change are man-made uh, or they're just a part of a natural climatic process, they still understand that, you know, that, that there's, you know, these impacts that are happening um, and they begin to pay more of attention. You know, your insurance rates are going to begin to go up. Uh, you're, no matter where you live, you maybe end up paying more healthcare care costs as more and more folks are exposed to toxic chemicals. Um, then more folks, there's going to be a stronger drain, if you will, on the healthcare system, um, and the prices are going to continue to increase. Um, so there are lots of different ways uh, of helping people to understand how many of these things are interconnected, um, but you know, and, and how they can help to get engaged in these issues. Um, so it just, I've always. Um, sort of determine where somebody is, where they come from. So I come from Appalachia. Um, and, you know, there are certain conversations that are going to resonate more there um, than, you know, if I'm in California or, or New York or some other places. Um, so you just have to figure out where people are um, and, and to begin that conversation. Now, as it relates to those elected officials uh, and others who have power, um, you know, it's a matter of people becoming mobilized um, and finding individuals uh, who represent sort of their view sets, if you will. I never tell people who to vote for, but I do say you should vote for somebody who has your best interest at heart. And also to let others know uh, who may not have seen value uh, in your life or your communities that there will be accountability in the, pro uh, in the process. Um, that's one of the reasons that I came to the Hip Hop Caucus, because they have a Respect My Vote campaign which, you know, translates into power, translates into getting people who haven't normally been a part of the democratic or civic process uh, to understand the value that exists inside of their vote and how they can make real change happen. So I often say that, you know, if you can't, for altruistic reasons, get someone to pay attention, you can usually get them to pay attention uh, through economics or through uh, the power of the vote. What are... Uh what is, what is one thing that you're most excited about that you're working on right now that that um, that you think could could really create some lasting change? Oh gosh, the, I'm so blessed, and, and that's probably why I'm so tired all the time. There's so many things we're working on. So people's climate music is one of the things that I'm extremely excited about, and that is 
working with artists and entertainers and in some instances athletes um, and their platform uh, and them getting engaged around climate issues um, and, and other sort of social justice issues. Because, you know, if we have someone like Chance the Rapper or Vic Mensa or Beyonce who shares some information, you know, millions of people mm-hmm. are going to start to pay attention and, and, you know, it becomes a part of sort of the the culture after a while when people begin to engage and, and talk about it. And, or, you know, if I had 10,000 great scientists, I might have, uh, you know, a hundred people who pay attention. So people's climate music is one of those things that really excites me because it has that cultural uh, aspect to it, which I think is so necessary and being able to reach a lot of different people. And then the other one is because lots of times we talk about the injustices, the environmental injustices and impacts that happen inside of communities. The flip side of that coin is how do we properly revitalize vulnerable communities? How do we help them move from surviving to thriving, if you will? Um, And we are moving forward on the creation of a Revitalizing Vulnerable Communities Institute. Uh, It's going to be in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And it's a great example of how change can happen they took a $20,000 environmental justice small grant and leveraged it into $300 million in changes. Um, and, you know, they had lots of different impacts that were happening in housing and healthcare and lack of jobs. They had brownfields and Superfund sites, so forth and so on, um, and were able to make, make real, real change happen. So for me, revitalizing vulnerable communities is where we should be focused. This is so exciting, too, because on such a some, somewhat somber <laughs> week or two, um, in the middle of an administration that a lot of people are just so unable to even fathom um, the sort of challenges that we seem to be facing, to have someone that is so excited about the possibility of, 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 of creating a better world in the near term and going out there and doing it every day. It's just such an honor to have you here to talk about that. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, there are some, there are so many bright spots in, in, in some of the darkness, of course, that, that, that surrounds us sometimes. But I, I, I would hope that your listeners would think about this. You know, at the beginning of the year, we had the Women's March. Now, you know, we had a million women who came together and said that one, we're going to stand up, and two, we're going to be heard, and three, we're going to hold you accountable. That's power. And then we had the science march. Now, I don't know about you. I know quite a few scientists, and many of them I never see coming out of their lab. (laughs) But when you literally have tens of thousands of scientists who are standing up and who are saying that we are a part of the process, Um, and that we're going to stay engaged and that we're going to use our intellect and our ability to connect with folks uh, and to partner with folks in an authentic way. Um, And, you know, hand in hand, uh, we're going to be able to move forward to address injustices. That's power. And then you had People's Climate March, which was very diverse. Of course, it could have been even more diverse. But you had millions of folks both here in this country and across the world coming together. And, you know, we are now in a moment where people are beginning, you know, I I love that hashtag. And when people say, you know, stay woke, (laughs) I mean, I think that that is so powerful because people are actually seeing what is happening and they're saying this is not reflective of our country. This is not reflective of humanity. And this is not the future uh, that we want for ourselves or our children or our grandchildren. 
And the other thing that I'm extremely excited about is that there are so many young people, uh, you know, across the country who just get these issues. They know them. Mm -hmm. They're looking at folks like, how could you not know that climate change is real? How could you not know that injustice is wrong? How could you not know that racism is not something that we want a part of our future? Uh, and, And we reject this. And that's the beauty of this moment is that even though there are these super challenges that we are facing, that people are saying that, no, this is not who we are and we will push back and we will get this back on track. And that's why I'm super excited um, because I know what's coming. Sometimes (laughs) you have to face these injustices for folks to say that this is not reflective of who we are. Uh, We've seen it throughout the history of our country where we get to a point where people are like, well, wait a minute, no, this is not right, and this is not how we want to be defined, um, and we can and will do better. I'm like, I'm so pumped right now (laughs) hearing that, because I just feel like, um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to maintain that the energy, right, to, to be, to be an activist, to, to be an advocate. Um, It can, if you're paying attention, it, it can be really easy to, to become just burdened with the weight of, of just how dark things can feel. Um, when you, when you're seeing the atrocities or you're, you're seeing the, the lack of care, um, by the institutions that are supposed to be empowered by, by the citizens that these institutions are supposed to protect us. And, um, what I love about this conversation is that it's highlighting a, that the power is with us, with the people, and we can't forget that and lose sight of it. Um, there are there are lots of kinds of power, as you said, and and we hold some of that, and and also just that what you just said about I know what's coming um, is might be the first time I felt hopeful since November, <laughs> which is um, yeah, just the fact that we have this tremendous generation, um, like the the kids in my classrooms, right, or the ones who are working in my lab, that. Um, that get this even more than we do on, on so many levels. And so I don't, I don't feel like what you're saying is naive or, you know, like naively optimistic. I feel like you're very both aspirational and pragmatic. And those are notes that I don't know how you do it. I would love, would love to like, Oh man, I'd love to like pick your brain over, you know, you know, chocolate cake or something and just f- figure out like, how, how, how do you hit that spot? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. It sounds like. Yeah, I have. Um, but I remember when I first started as a student, one of the first uh, conferences, the second conference that I ever went to was at Xavier University. Um, and Dr. Beverly Wright actually hosted that. And there was an elderly African-American woman who was there. She had been impacted by some chemicals and had stripped the color out of her skin. When I first seen her, I didn't even know that she was African-American. Um, and I remember the hopefulness and optimism that she had. And I remember her taking my hand and and pulling me off to the side and and her sharing with me as a young person at that time, the responsibility that I would have moving forward and that I should always remember what I was being, that I was hearing and seeing. um, And that should be a guide for me working on these issues. So I always remember those voices Um, and faces from over the years, many that have now transitioned on, but looking in their eyes and and also being blessed to meet many civil rights leaders over the years and and seeing people who were 70, 80 years old who still had that sparkle in their eyes 
um, for change, even though they had been through some really horrific things. Like you and I will never have to go through some of the things that folks, you know, you know, had, you know, with hoses and being beaten and all these other types of things. And they still kept that, that, that hope, that optimism, that belief that change could happen. Uh, but it doesn't happen by itself. It takes hard work. It takes commitment. It takes focus. Um, and it also takes, you know, building those collaborative partnerships with individuals. And, and that's one of the ways that I stay, you know, so, so, so laser focused on, on what can happen. And the other one is meeting so many fantastic people around the country. The other day I was getting off a, of a train from New York was uh, coming up an escalator and uh, a young girl, she couldn't have been more than, I don't know, maybe 16. And her mother was there and they were right in front of me and she turned around and she said, are you Mustafa? And I was like, "We, well, yes, ma'am. And she said, the reason that I got involved in science issues and I'm going to study that uh, in college is because of the work that you and others are doing in this space. And when wow. someone shares something like that with you, you're just like, that's what it's all about. It's all about that next generation who's coming, um, who sees value and who's focused, and they're going to bring their innovation. Um, and, and, and it's just going to keep building and keep building. Um, so change is never easy. Um, but, you know, if we stay committed, if we stay focused and we stay locked arm in arm together, we can do it. And um, if we don't, we know what's going to happen, uh, but I, I believe in I believe in people, and I know that that that's going to happen. Well, in the name of of hard work and and you know all the good things to come, thank you so much for for coming on our show today. This was a real honor for us. Well, thank you all for having me, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. The information that you're sharing, which is so important, highlighting those stories that folks need to hear. Um, and then after they hear them, to get engaged. You know, there are plenty of organizations across the country, community organizations, other nonprofits who can use your help um, as long as it's authentic um, and you enter into that space, um, you know, in, in sort of a, a level of, you know, solidarity. And um, no matter what you do, whether you're an attorney or a scientist or you're a poet uh, or a rapper, whatever it is, you have something to contribute to help to make the movement stronger. Um, and, you know, folks are looking for you. All right. Well, with that call to action, that I think we should just end it there. That's our show for this week, folks. We hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as we did and as always, we want this to be your show as much as possible. We love to hear from our listeners. So please do reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. You can send us an email at OurWarmRegards at gmail.com. And we would love for you to review us on iTunes and uh, download this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasting. So for my co-host, Eric Holthouse, um, and for Andy Revkin, who couldn't join us this week because he's on a, on a deadline fighting the good fight at ProPublica, and for our guest, Mustafa Ali, this is Warm Regards. Be well, everyone. We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of Warm Regards. 
Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good.